If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Welcome to Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom, the podcast where I have the privilege of speaking with people who see the wrong in the world and are driven to make it right. At the age of 18, today's guest was convicted under California's felony murder statute for a crime in which he was not the killer. Nonetheless, he was given a sentence of 25 years to life, but he managed to free himself after 16 long years. How did he do it? By getting a new law passed. And so this law was created from in prison from an organization that was created in prison and was passed essentially from inside. And so that part I really want to like tell people who have been incarcerated or who are incarcerated or people who are working with incarcerated people like the, the energy, the, lo- the labor of love that was behind this. You can't put tangibility to that, right? That That's just something that comes from a deep space of, of love and, and this never giving up spirit. Since his release, he's continued to advocate for reform and promote restorative justice through the organization Restore Justice. Adnan Khan, right now on Righteous Convictions. Welcome back to Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom. You know, when I started this podcast, I had a general idea of the type of guest I wanted to interview and the type of work I wanted to highlight. And today's guest, Adnan Khan, is like a, he's a bullseye. It's the epitome of what I had in mind. I mean, you talk about transformation, you talk about channeling tragedy into triumph, 
And you got to come back around to my friend Adnan Khan. So Adnan, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to Righteous Convictions. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm really thrilled that we're here to talk about this because we're going to take our listeners on a journey today. And this one goes back to a crime that you were involved in. You don't make any bones about that. But when you were just 18 years old, right? Now, this is not a pure innocence case. You were involved in the robbery of a guy who was going to sell you some marijuana. And it's important that we make that distinction. But in the process of this robbery, the young man was unfortunately killed by the person that you were with, not by you. Now, under felony murder laws, as they were in California at that time, and as they still are in most states, you're considered just as guilty as the person who actually committed the murder, although that was not your intention and you weren't the person that did the deed. So we'll get to that story and the circumstances surrounding that incident and the trajectory it started you on. But first, let's rewind a little further. What was your life like growing up? You know, in the first like 17 plus years before this thing happened? Um, yeah, growing up, man, I felt like, um, well, growing up, I was a happy kid. I loved to laugh. Comedy was a big thing for me. Cartoons, obviously, what kid doesn't? Cartoons and cereal, right? Um, but also, there were a lot of challenges. Uh, my father, my parents divorced when I was eight years old. And I think the beginning of my challenges started when um, my father was uh, absent, basically. So uh, he was in and out of my life. And I always wondered while I was my, uh, during my incarceration, what my life would have been like if my father was all the way in my life or what my life would have been like if my father was all the way out. But for me, because he was in and out, um, it created more of a tease for a need for a positive male role model, um, place of belonging. And so that uh, really contributed to um, kind of resenting home, not wanting to be home, seeking um, my father, seeing where he was. I would literally take the bus or take the, um, the subway, well, it's called BART in California or Northern California. And I would go look for him, um, uh, different places, ask some of his friends where he would be at. So that desire for me really contributed to a lot of my behaviors of, of needing and wanting a, a positive male role model and friendships. Um, and then after that, my mom uh, remarried and I was 12 years old at this time. And that's where a lot of the abuse started from my stepfather. Um, he would grab me, throw me on the ground, um, throw me in the car and tell me, I'm going to throw you over the bridge. Um, he, one time he tried to put something in my eye, which really burns. It was some type of acid poison. I'm not sure, but it, a little bit of drop got into my right eye. Um, he paid my best friend $10 to try to beat me up. He would have he would steal things from my mom or have my stepbrothers or his kids steal things from my mom, put in my jacket and coat pocket and say that I was stealing. Um, effectively took me out of my little league baseball that I loved. Uh, one thing that baseball provided for me was um, that positive male role model. I had other peers that were just like me. So I had a, I felt like I had a place of belonging in sports and he knew that. So um, I was effectively taken out of baseball and uh, I just didn't want to be in the home anymore. So I would, at 12 years old, I'd run away or not come home or stay outside as much as possible playing basketball or just swinging a bat. Um, and then after that, in my teens, I started smoking weed, uh, drinking and cutting school, even though I was a good student. Uh, I remember getting straight A's in sixth grade and straight A's in ninth grade. Um, so school wasn't um, as difficult, just I couldn't continue with all the emotional baggage. So during my teens... Um, I was kind of in and out of school. I went to about seven different high schools, just uh, getting in fights, uh, moving, 
I haven't seen my dad since I was 14, actually. That's when he fully disappeared. And by the time I was 17, uh, my mom remarried for the third time and moved out of state. Um, and about a month later, my uncle uh, kicked me out of the house at the age of 17. So I lived homeless for about a year, slept in cars, parks, uh, friends' houses, couches, um, tennis courts, uh, on the porch of my cousin's house because I wasn't allowed in there, just anywhere I could. And that lasted for almost about a year. But then I tried to get a job, but I was a high school dropout at that time. By then, um, I had turned 18 under those conditions. And I even enrolled myself into adult school, but I didn't have enough money for transportation to go to adult school. Um, and these things looked really bad and ugly. And so one day I was um, with a group of friends which, where I was introduced to another friend and he found out my situation. Um, I was 18 by now. He was 22. And he asked me to come, you know, whenever I want to come stay with him. So I lived with him for about almost two months on and off. And uh, one night when I was with him and his friends, that's when they um, said, hey, there's a guy that has a thousand dollars worth of weed. He doesn't have guns, knives, weapons. I, I've never had guns, knives or weapons on me either. And they said in a fake drug deal, uh, take this thousand dollars worth of weed, run into a car and the driver will drive off. And so I immediately and impulsively agreed to that. My goal was to take my portions of it sell it. And I told myself, if I'm going to be homeless in the Bay Area, I'd rather be homeless in LA. And I wanted to actually um, try to pursue a comedy career. I didn't know what I was going to do, but it was definitely comedy because my whole life, it was comedy that that uh, got me by. But um, that night is when my life uh, changed. And that's when I was incarcerated from that night. Okay. So you've agreed to help these dudes rob the guy with the marijuana. So the big night comes. What was the plan and what were you supposed to do? Um, and so that night when this young man uh, came down, we, my friends who I was with called up a getaway driver. They set up the fake drug deal because they knew him and I didn't. And so that's why I was a person to act like I was buying it from him. Uh, once he handed it to me, sprint into a car and the driver would drive off. So this getaway driver who I hardly knew, I met him one time like in passing that I remembered later. So when the young man handed me the weed, the getaway driver was on the passenger side of the car and pulled out this young man out of the car and appeared to me that they were fighting in the middle of the road. And so I started yelling and screaming, like, get back in the car. What are you doing? What are you doing? Um, and then that's when he ran back into the car. We sped off. And the next morning I was arrested at 2 a.m. I didn't know what I was being arrested for. They don't they didn't remember Miranda rights. Um, I asked the officer who was taking me to the police station what my charges were and he wouldn't answer. I get to the police station, they take all my clothes, strip search, do all the forensics. And finally, I was taken into the interrogation room. Um, and that's when they told me that we're charging you with robbery and murder. And at first, it didn't compute. And they said that this young man had lost his life. And that's when I remember just breaking down and crying. It didn't make any sense to me. I want, want to know how it happened. And they said that, the, that they have evidence that um, he was stabbed. And so find out i find out that my the getaway driver who became my co-defendant he was a young black male 21 years old bipolar schizophrenic had a list of like eight pills that he wasn't taking um from his bipolar schizophrenia and from those eight pills apparently because of his uh schizophrenia and his paranoia he had a concealed knife that he didn't tell any one of us about and so that night he what the court paper said he snapped where he snaps in and out of reality and and blacks out and has a violent outburst. And so that's what ended up happening. It's, and un very unfortunately, took this young man's life. And so that's when I learned about my involvement and then the felony murder rule, 
where it said that that I'm equally guilty of the murder because I committed a felony. So what that would look like in trial, if if the the audience or the listeners here are uh, the jurors, your job was only to find me guilty of an intent to commit a robbery. And so literally my trial started off with the district attorney saying, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, um, I'm going to tell you right now that Mr. Khan did not commit a murder. Um, that's not why we're here. Your only job is to prove with reasonable doubt that Mr. Khan had an intent to commit a robbery. Uh, so basically the jury's job was done. They found me guilty. I was guilty um, of an intent to commit a robbery. I still am. And so uh, once they found me guilty, uh, their job was done. They went home to their families. And the next phase was the judge's phase several months later. And the judge had to sentence me to a mandatory 25 to life sentence under the felony murder rule. After my the jury found me guilty and before the judge, here comes this, these uh, couple of forensic psychologists. They do all sorts of tests over a period of one week. And when the report came back, it said in the report that had it not been for this mandatory sentence, we would uh, recommend probation for Mr. Khan. And so after all of that, just being found guilty of a robbery murder, they still said that we would recommend probation, but obviously they couldn't because of the mandatory sentence. But you had never intended on anyone getting killed. You were just a kid who was going to go help rip this guy off for some pot, doing something, you know, unquestionably stupid, like a lot of kids do at that age. What were you thinking when you heard that prison sentence come down? Were you like, whoa, this is like not only unfair, but unreal? You know, I do. I do still I want to add, like, I do still take responsibility for like what I did. And there's a big part of me. I mean, uh, yeah, you know, being being locked up and, and you sit there, a lot of people will see the sensationalized part of prison. Right. And we, that's the co most common thing about, you know, the fights, the riots. But the truth is the fights and the riots, they last matter of seconds. And so what society doesn't see or think about is what we do the rest of the, what is it, 23 hours and 59 minutes, right? What those conversations are, what those self-reflections are. Um, we talk about remorse and and we have victim awareness. We, we think about mortality. Um, if we're not forgiven in this life and if we're going to die in this life, then what is the next life like? How can I make up? How can I do a living amends here? And so even though, yes, I did not uh, intend nor did I kill a victim in, in, in my case, I still hold myself responsible. Um, I do understand like there is someone that, um, a mother who has lost a child, a father who has lost a child, a sister and brother who have lost a, a sibling. And, and that never leaves me, you know? And so even though I'm not, I guess, fully, I, I live in this awkward um, space of what people say. I don't like to use the word innocent, but I guess for the sake of this conversation, innocent and then guilty. And I feel like I'm in the middle of that, like my whole incarceration, even up until this day. Like I did do something wrong. I didn't do it to the extent that they're saying, nor did I intend to. But I hold myself responsible internally uh, with with the remorse and the, and, and the act of making of amends. Thank you.
Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom is super excited and honored to have the support of a great organization like Galaxy Gives. Galaxy Gives leads the philanthropic efforts of the Novogratz family. They invest in organizations, campaigns, and leaders who are directly impacted by and working to dismantle the current punitive justice system. Galaxy Gives also builds power for the communities most harmed by mass incarceration and forges transformative solutions for responding to that harm. They envision a society where the structural barriers created by racism, poverty, and inequality are no more, where instead all people have the dignity, freedom, and rights needed to thrive. So you go from that 18-year-old with a 25-to-life sentence to somebody who was primarily responsible for legislation that ended up not only leading to your freedom, but to the freedom of countless other deserving people who were sentenced under the felony murder rule in California. I'm talking about Senate Bill 1437, which you initiated and fought for and which was passed into law in 2018. And not only that, you did this from the inside, from behind the big walls those intimidating walls of San Quentin prison. I mean, that's incredible. It's absolutely heroic. So, I mean, how did this happen? Take us through that journey. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, my first four years while I was, I was in county jail fighting this case. Um, so it was 18 years, 18 to 22 years old. And um, I just remember like becoming, I guess, this little uh, young jailhouse lawyer. I studied the the crap out of the felony murder rule and and robbery and all sorts of murder. Just that's all I was doing, exhausting myself with uh, educating myself, learning, learning about the law as much as I can. And to a point where when I was found guilty, I was just I knew that the only way for me to go home was if the felony murder rule changed. So when I was sentenced and taken to state prison, though, I did appeal my case, but I just I did it out of formality, I guess. Um, I knew that the by law, the court had not made an error. And that's what would help me in my appeal. Like, okay, we, we have findings that the court made an error, but the court didn't. They did everything right under that law. So I knew that eventually if I were to go home, would be either in 25 years and then at the parole board if they find me suitable in 25 years. But I knew that the only way for me to go home any sooner would be if this law changed. And you founded a nonprofit organization from inside. I believe the original goal of that was just to change this law and try to get yourself released, right? Yeah. Um, so I founded Restore Justice officially in 2017 is when we got our nonprofit 501c3 status. But uh, we were actually doing a lot of this work in 2016. And that's when the law started to kind of take traction. Um, we got a legislator behind it um, to say the injustices of it. I used my story, other stories across the nation, across the state, women's stories who were the non-killer in, the, in, in, the, um, in those crimes, as well as um, our own data and statistics the legislature wanted some data, wanted some statistics around these issues, uh, who are the non-killers and felony murder cases. But under California prison system, they didn't have that. They classified all of us as the actual killer or under murder robbery. They didn't make a distinction of who was the killer, who was the non-killer. And so when we asked to do a survey, um, if they could help us with the survey, this is the Department of Corrections. They said no or put us through a bunch of loopholes. So what we did was a very, um, I guess, a clever um, workaround. I made a questionnaire inside as simple as possible, under, trying to um, make it as simple for the people, for myself and people inside to see if they fit under that law. And uh, we had a bunch of chaplains, rabbis, uh, imams throughout the prison system, kind of like sneak it in and then kind of hand it to the people inside. And they would make copies through the 
to their own methods and means and ways inside. And next thing you know, um, in, in our mailbox outside, we started getting a bunch of letters, a bunch of surveys back. And then we had a whole team to make sure that that was accurate if, in their, if their cases did actually fit that. And, you know, that's when we found out that 72% of women under, under this law were the non-killer um, doing time in California. We found out over 2,000 people were affected by this law that were the non-killer in this felony murder uh, law. And that statistic, by the way, is, to call it what it is, it's just outrageous. It is. It is crazy. Um, it's insane. It is. And that was even like, you know, for me to, to read that while I was incarcerated, to read that statistic was mind blowing for me. I, I, I didn't think about it. I'm a lot, you know, obviously a lot of times women uh, issues are left behind um, in, in when we talk about incarceration. So that was a huge eye opener for me as an incarcerated person serving life under felony murder, as a male serving life under felony murder. And, and you know, another thing was that we, we saw um, the different cases where uh, guys commit a burglary and there's a high-speed chase and an officer loses his or her life, uh, loses their life from an accident, not from uh, a murder. And then they both would get life. Um, there was a case where two young kids, teenagers were about to burglarize a house, which is wrong. The person inside starts shooting at them and one of them passes away. And so the other one gets the life sentence and a conviction for his friend's death. You know, so those those types of cases were so also so common and, and normal. Um, and a lot of youth do things in groups, whether it's to find camaraderie, whether it's gangs, whether it's whatever, whatever it may be, a lot of youth do things in groups. So this law, what it did was kind of take a bunch of people at one time and throw them all in prison and for life. So like the, the success of this law was kind of twofold, the front end and the back end. The back end is the bill is retroactive. And so people are going to, are getting out of prison. So through this law, we're decarcerating people and not only just decarcerating, but specifically uh, people sentenced to life. And then on the front end is no one else will be in the state of California will be charged with this law and be sentenced to life moving forward. So Adnan, that is truly miraculous. And this law is going to help a lot of people. And in fact, it already has. But let's back up for just a second. Let's talk about the moment of truth. SB 1437 was passed in August of 2018. And in January of 2019, it goes into effect. What happened next? So um, it was, I remember it was uh, like the second, third week of January, like January 17th. I remember going to bed like at 11 o'clock at night, actually falling asleep, I mean, around 11 o'clock at night. And then around 12.30, 12.40, a correctional officer wakes me up and slides two clear trash bags under my cell. And he says, hey, pack your stuff. County jail's coming to pick you up. And I remember like waking up in my sleep and kind of frustrated, angry. I'm like, hey, this is a clerical error. This is a mistake. Uh, I don't know why they're coming to pick me up. Um, and so I just, in a frustrating way, I pack all my stuff in these clear trash bags. Uh, longer story short, they transport me to county jail. They finally put me in in a jumpsuit, and uh, I didn't sleep for almost a day. I ate maybe a, a carton of milk, drank a carton of milk, and ate one piece of bologna sandwich in the intake. Uh, and then they finally, at midnight, put me in a cell and woke me up again 4 a.m. So I had about four hours of sleep after 24 hours. So they marched me into the courtroom, and before I get in the courtroom, the bailiff says, hey, there's a bunch of people here. I'm going to put you in first, and the people will come in. You're not allowed to look back. Do not look back when people walk in. You may speak to your attorney that's next to you, but don't look back. So I get in there. He unhandcuffs me. 
Um, then I hear people walking in, a bunch of friends, my family. I hear their voices. Apparently, I still don't know what till this day what it looked like, but apparently the courtroom was standing room only with, with just my supporters. Uh, but before that, I turned to my attorney. I asked her if the victim's family was here. And the reason I asked that is because I didn't want to re-victimize or re-harm them in any way. If they either saw me after, what, 16 years, um, or if I if they heard me, if I had to like answer to the judge for some reason. So my attorney said that, no, the, the victim's family is not here. And my following question to her, I said, hey, as soon as this hearing is over, I remember it was MLK weekend, it was a Friday, and I told her, as soon as this hearing or whatever this dry run is, whenever this is over, can you please send me back to San Quentin? The Super Bowl is next week. Like, I want to go back and watch the Super Bowl. I don't want to be here. She says, yeah, 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 we'll take care of it. So that's where my mind was at that time. So literally seconds later, in walks the judge. Now, this is the same judge that sentenced me to 25 to life, the same judge that I saw for practically four years filing my motions and my and all that stuff. So in walks the judge. We rise, we sit down. Uh, she says, okay, uh, Mr. Khan, I looked at your case and your files, uh, and I looked at the new legislation. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to resentence you for the robbery to three years. And by then, um, I had done 16 years. And she says, since you've done more than five times that amount of the three years, I'm going to be releasing you today. And I just sat there. And I heard, all I heard was gas and cries in the background. And I froze. Um, couldn't believe what she said. Like, just five seconds ago, I wanted to go back to San Quentin to watch the Super Bowl. And you're telling me you're releasing me today. Yeah, man. And so uh, and then she says, I'm not putting you on parole or probation. That's excessive. And that uh, she looked at my family and my supporters and she says he probably has an hour or so to process out. So you may want to get him some clothes and get him out of those clothes when he comes out. So, um, yeah, man, a few hours later, I come out and um, just don't know. And the rest is history, I guess. That is an amazing and inspiring story. I mean, the fact that you saw this need to get the law change, somehow figured it out, picked up the ball and ran with it and actually got it over the goal line. It never ceases to amaze me. The idea that this is something that not only could be done, but that you managed to do it, and the fact that you were the first person to get out under that revised law is awesome. And it's like poetic justice in a certain way. I appreciate it, man. There were a lot of obviously like, um, you know, I, I, get, I guess publicly, I get public facing credit for it. But there are so many people that aren't seen or heard or that are part of the success of this, a huge part. And so I'm um, very grateful and thankful for all of them. Uh, but one amazing thing that, that I do feel proud of, we all feel proud of, is that this law was started from inside the prison walls limited access to information, limited access to people, but there was ambition, there was drive, there was hope, there was a never giving up spirit, the the fight for your life um, spirit. And so this law was created from in prison, from an organization that was created in prison and was passed essentially from inside. And then I ended up being the first person resentenced under the bill that we created from in prison, from an organization in prison. And so that part, I really want to like tell people who have been incarcerated or who are incarcerated or people who are working with incarcerated people, like the, the energy, the, lo- the labor of love um, that was behind this is the, you can't put tangibility to that, right? That, that's just something that uh, comes from a deep space of, of, of love and, and this never uh, giving up spirit.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity, and it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. And the organization, again, was called Restore Justice. So just to take a sidebar here, we talk a lot about restorative justice on this show, and it seems like there's so much misunderstanding about what that actually means. So Adnan, I'd love to get your take on it. So restorative justice is um, mainly about repairing harm. And so there's there's two approaches to this that aren't necessarily simultaneous. Most people think restorative justice is having the person that's responsible for harm hurry up and meet the person that has been harmed. And that's not, not the case. And so in our work, you want to make sure that both sides are ready to even have that uh, meeting. But restorative justice is more like repairing the damage that's been caused, one, on uh, the person, why, why they committed the harm. Like what is, you know, hurt people hurt people. Everyone's heard that so much. But I went from an eight-year-old Little League baseball player to an 18-year-old with a life sentence. And that trauma, that harm that I received and the violence that I received um, in those 10 years um, contributed to my, my violence. So what is the repairing that needs to be done in my heart, in my soul? In, uh, is it housing? I was homeless. I was, by the time I was arrested, I was a, a parentless, homeless high school dropout. And any one of those things would have probably could have stopped me from going, going to prison or committing my harm. And then on the other end is what is the, 
repair that the survivors and the victims need, you know, especially something so tragic as losing a loved one. What is that? We haven't identified that or that hasn't been so publicized. And one thing that we don't understand is that uh, a lot of people don't even think about this. District attorneys do not represent the victims. District attorneys by law represent the state. So there's been so many cases in my organization that I learned from victims that if they wanted restorative justice and they, they approached the district attorneys with that, the district attorneys wouldn't give that to them because it didn't contribute to their narrative of conviction. And so what the, the first people that survivors and victims meet is the district attorney. And the district attorney tells them, this is what your healing looks like. I'm here for you. I'm going to fight for you. Your healing looks like a life sentence, death penalty, and, and the longest sentence in, in, inside. The more we punish this person, the better you'll feel. And that's such a warped and distorted way of like thinking about what, what justice looks like. You know? And so when I was locked up, I was never told to make an amend. I was never told to be accountable. I was never told to go fix myself. None of that. And I did that all on my own. So our system doesn't hold you accountable. It just holds you. So no one actually ever gets any type of healing on either end. And that's what the, um, it turns into institutionalized violence, right? So there's systemic violence from that. Uh, and the cycle just continues. And so uh, restorative justice is, is such a deeper uh, concept that uh, it, it goes way beyond the initial impulse of just the two people hurry up and meeting together. And that's not the case. So, so first and foremost, restored justice was started to try and get the felony murder rule overturned. But it's, you didn't just leave it there, right? You went on and it's gone on to do other great things. And you've had some really amazing successes, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So the main thing about restored justice, what well, we say it was the law, right? But actually, I couldn't say that publicly inside like you're not allowed to be an activist inside so even though the law was being done it was kind of being done secretly um, but the main thing that restore justice did um, was work around life sentences so under our staff we had people who were uh, who have lost loved ones to murder and then people on our staff who had committed murder and who were one sentenced to life who are out now and literally hand in hand with the victim survivors and people who have committed such harm we will go to uh, the state capitals and advocate for a better restorative system so that was what was going on for a long time um, one thing that another success that we had once i came home was we got a budget play where we were given five million dollars to start a, not us but to um, an organization um, to five million dollars to have an alternative to uh to incarceration have restorative justice pilot program in, in San Joaquin County. So that was a really, really big success. Uh, we were also a big part of the pandemic relief, um, you know, incarcerate the people. Um, we raised over a hundred thousand dollars in within a year to, uh, and we were giving $50 at a time to incarcerated people on their uh, uh, prison accounts so they could buy hygiene and food and, um, you know, and then and also advocating for releases. The governor ended up releasing around 8,000 people during this time. So there was a lot that was being done, um, kind of like all hands on, especially during the pandemic and continuing our restorative justice work and reframing violence. But our, our organization sunsetted towards the end of uh, last year, uh, 2021, um, with the, with funding issues. And it was hard to raise money during the pandemic. Yeah. So. Unfortunately, sunset, but it was time. It was time to sunset and I guess move on. Well, one good thing that's come out of that, I guess, is that you'll have more time for some of your other exciting projects. So tell us about First Watch, the program you started to introduce filmmaking as a restorative tool for incarcerated people. How did that come about? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of the story I've, I've, I've hardly talked about because um, 
just wasn't part of the narrative, I guess, right? But before the felony murder rule law, before the restored justice organization, the first, first thing that I did was actually start a film project called First Watch. And from that, invited a bunch of philanthropists and was pitching idea of a film project where incarcerated people um, took control of their own narrative. And so I ended up getting a big chunk of funding and somehow convinced the administration to allow us to get um, almost like 250K worth of equipment, computers, editing software, mics, boom mics, lav mics, lighting equipment, you name it. I still have videos and pictures of a huge, huge palette being delivered into what we call the media center in San Quentin. Um, so that's what I actually started first. And that's and we started learning film. I started teaching film to each other. Uh, we don't have internet access inside, obviously. Um, so we would learn by either reading books that we would order or literally watching TV or commercials and counting how long each clip lasts, what angle they used, um, how, how do they sell a product, a Sprite, a bottle of a Sprite or a can of Sprite in 30 seconds? Like, how do you do that, right? And so we learned lighting, we learned editing, we learned storyboarding, we learned cinematography. So I did film for four years um, straight when, when I was in there. That was my job. That was my, my life, my vision. I wanted to do comedy, so we made a, a bunch of funny videos. One was called Selfies, C-E-L-L. Um, and it was a, like a play on MTV Cribs. So the guy would be like, come on in, let me show you my living room, my bed, my kitchen, you know, my bathroom and this and that. So it was just... Um, trying to use humor. So those types of things. Um, the idea around it, again, was to let us be the storytellers, let us tell our own story. And Hollywood and sensationalized media has has taken control of our identity. And at the same time, we're artists. Like We're not formally incarcerated filmmakers. We're filmmakers who are formally incarcerated or we're filmmakers who are currently incarcerated. And so that um, when I came home, it was a blessing. I had two options, pursue film, um, and there were offers and opportunities there or become the executive director officially of my organization. And I wanted to, it was kind of no doubt in my brain, like I wanted to, in my heart, to be the executive director of nonprofit of, of, of my organization and continue to give back and help people I left behind get out. But I knew eventually when the time would come in my heart and my soul that I wanted, um, I wanted to do something creative. I feel like I'm an artist at heart. I want to create. I, I fell in love with film. It's crazy how when during my commission of my crime, the reason I did that was to go become homeless in LA and figure something out with comedy or even film then. And then when I get to San Quentin about 12, 13 years later, I'm in a place, the media center and and a film project, allowed to do a film project. It's just, I don't know, the universe was speaking to me. So about six months ago, I uh, finally started to do film. And my main job is uh, I work under a foundation, and in this foundation, I uh, give away grants to uh, filmmakers who are formerly incarcerated and help them along the way in their process, put a team around them, a support, moral support team, a, a team of whether they're editors or directors or producers, writers, whatever they want to be, just put some help and support around that, around them, and build, build like a cohort of peer support as well of you know, filmmakers who are formerly incarcerated uh, and across the nation. So, yeah, that's my main job, and um, it's been amazing. And the name of that foundation, I understand, is First Watch Filmmakers. So, Adnan, how can our listeners get in touch if they want to help out? So if you would like to contribute and help out and donate for other impacted and formerly incarcerated filmmakers uh, to make their films, their docs, their short films, uh, you can reach out to me on my social media account, Akon. It's A-K-H-A-N, 1437. 
on Twitter or Instagram. Great. We'll put all that information in our bio. So if folks out there want to donate or maybe you're someone who could benefit from one of the grants or maybe you just know someone who is or who will. We've got a couple more things to talk about, but first I want to remind listeners to tune in next week. My guest will be the truly remarkable Ramarlin Ralston, a prison abolitionist scholar and the executive director of College and Community Fellowship in New York. She's an incredibly inspiring human, and I know you won't want to miss it. And now, Adnan Khan. First of all, thank you so much for being here today to tell us your amazing story. And now we have two things left to do. The first one is a question. It's my favorite question. It's the magic wand question. So if I had a magic wand and could grant you any one wish, what would it be? Oh, my gosh. What a, what a, oh, my gosh. With this magic wand, I would put a magic wand in everyone's hand. Ah, I love that. Magic wands for everyone. And what's the outcome you would wish for? What would be the culmination of these billions and billions of wishes? Um, peace. Peace, peace of heart. Peace in the heart. Tranquility. Ease. Um, euphoria. Everything else will be taken care of after that. And finally, the final segment, which is appropriately called Words of Wisdom. And this is the part of the show where I turn off my mic, turn up my headphones, kick back in my chair, and just listen to any last words you want to share with our listeners. So take it away, Adnan Khan. Mm, words of Wisdom. That's a tough one. I think that the only thing I can say is that um, how grateful I am of of everyone that is even listening people who care nothing can be done alone in terms of surviving inside we we're isolated we are alone but there's always a piece of hope somebody somewhere something even if we're not connected with people we know that people are out here doing something uh, people are, are out here going to the legislative offices or doing podcasts or making films or um, putting putting kids on buses to come see their children there's there's so many efforts that are being done i just want everyone to know that that stuff gets to people inside and it provides that hope and that energy uh, on days where there isn't motivation on days where you're just sitting there or lying there on your mattress and you don't want to pick up a book and you don't want to turn your tv on you don't want to do anything but just just lie there these efforts that everyone that is making out here helps us to get up, helps us to go ahead and do that workout, helps us to go ahead and go pick up that book or read the, or do an assignment or whatever it is. So I just want to thank everybody out here for doing exactly what they have been doing and contributing, getting involved and pushing against a system that's built to destroy and hopefully creating a better one that's more helpful, healthier and all inclusive. So I'll just leave off by saying thank you to everyone who's listening and thank you to everyone who cares. Thank you for listening to Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Jeff Kleiber, and Lila Robinson, and Kevin Wardus. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Lava for Good. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Righteous Convictions with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today.